The first scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 58, which can be found on page 1140 of your Red Pew Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 58, on page 1140 of your Red Pew Bibles. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The second scripture reading is taken from the uh, book of John, chapter 17, verse 3, which is found on page 1070 of your Red Pew Bibles. John, chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, for the past eight weeks, we have been exploring and walking through, at a leisurely pace, something called the Apostles' Creed. If you're a guest here, uh, a quick refresher. The Apostles' Creed is this compact summary of what the Christian faith, what Christians throughout time and history have said, these are the core convictions that we hold as true, as life-giving. The Apostles' Creed is this invitation for us to experience the joy of the gospel. It's this beautiful invitation for us to understand the mystery of the Christian faith, to, to somehow enter into the breadth, the height, the length, the width of the love that we know in Jesus Christ. And we've been seeking to understand how might we confidently live out this faith. Because Christians across the ages, in conditions very different than ours today, in every culture, in every context, have confidently, boldly stood up and said, I believe. And they would go through the creed. I hope as we've walked through, you've you've gained some of that confidence. I also hope that you've encountered some things that felt a little strange or unfamiliar, that things that you've had questions about, because that's a good, gentle Holy Spirit reminder that there's just way more to the Christian faith than perhaps what you've been taught or told or thought through yourself. But I hope it's also been an expansion of your faith, providing a a new entry point into the wonder of the gospel. But now we come to this last, two last lines of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We're wrapping it up here today, and it's a perfect point on which to end. Let's pray as we begin to reflect together. Heavenly Father, thank you for, first of all, the gospel that has been read Thank you for the gospel that provides life. Thank you for the Apostles' Creed, for this this beautifully compact summary of the good news of the gospel. And we pray, God, that as we reflect together today, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And so our prayer is simply, speak, Lord, for your children are listening. Amen. I remember as a child, uh, our family going on road trips for summer vacations. Uh, On most summers, our family would head out on some vacation, sometimes far, sometimes a little closer, and uh, it would always be a road trip. Um, Couldn't afford to fly back then with five kids, and so we would all bundle into the family station wagon, this great station wagon, a Vista Cruiser. It was green, it had this wood paneling sideboards on it classic. It's the car I inherited as a teen. It was a V8. That thing moved. Wow. So we would all trundle into the, into the, the, the station wagon. If you were lucky, you got to sit in the very back. You know, you could look out the back. This was, this was when seatbelts were sort of treated as a minor inconvenience in the car. Remember those days, some of you? I know I'm dating myself here. Well, we'd hit the road with books and snacks and games in our laps, off for an adventure. And of course, at some point, you knew it, at some point into the trip, maybe about an hour into it, there would be a phrase that got spoken, four words that would become a repeated chorus throughout the trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet, mom and dad? Are we there yet? 
If you're a parent and you've gone on trips, you know it. You hear it again. Those four words, however, describe a basic human hunch or feeling. Something in us is waiting. Something is waiting, but for what? Something better? Something different? Something more than what we now know and experience? Why is it that we have this profound sense that there's something more? We walk through a quiet wilderness forest, or we listen to a piece of music that just moves us from the guts outward, or we sit in a time of undistracted silence and we experience this awareness of something more that is going on, that there is something else operative in this world beyond what I can see, taste, touch. That just the walk through the forest or that moment of stillness or that piece of music, it's just scratching the surface of it. In human language, the deepest, the most mysterious expression of what we are waiting for is found in this word, eternity. Can't get away from that word. Eternity. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're told that God has set eternity in the human heart. God has placed some, like almost a homing beacon. And so our hearts connect with what is eternal. He has set eternity in our hearts. And so we are constantly asking, like kids on a road trip, are we there yet? I feel it, I hunch it, I long for it. Are we there yet? But what is eternity? At the very end of the Apostles' Creed, there are these two lines that look to the future. So the creed pivots all of a sudden. We're looking to the future. And it described the hope that every Christian have, which says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, I find it really fascinating that at the very end of the creed, it still remains so focused on the body. I mean, throughout the whole Apostles' Creed, it has held up and celebrated the, the very physical existence we have, the materiality of this life. So many other faiths and philosophies, you know, would teach that this world, this physical life, it's, it's sort of an inferior form of existence. It's an illusion meant to be done away with. You see that even in, in for instance, science fiction. One English professor, Deborah Reinstra, notes that uh, there is a basic plot device common to a lot of science fiction, and that is to arrange for a superior being, a superior alien species, and what form do they take? They usually take some unembodied form of just pure energy, and they encounter the poor primitive human beings trapped in the prison of their physical matter. Um, and so, so many people understand, so many faiths and philosophies are led to think of our bodies as inferior. And, and we can feel that because our bodies decay over time too, don't they? They don't work the way we want them to work. Our bodies are vulnerable to physical pain, sometimes debilitating illness, ultimately to death. And yet woven throughout this whole summary of the Christian faith is the value of the body, the, the high value in the Christian faith of the material world. It begins with God creating this physical 
world. Not just spiritual things, but material, physical things. In the second part, Jesus, uh, the focus on the Son of God, we see the Son of God coming into this physical world, sharing our physical nature, being born of a woman. He takes on a body, he suffers, he feels pain, he dies. And then in the third part, we confess how the the Spirit of God remains present in this physical world. And our future now, as we look forward to it, is a life in the body. Christianity has this sustained, persistent focus on the physical life. Which means that Christians take care of creation very seriously. It means that we care for bodies. You know, the whole medical field emerged because Christians said our bodies are important. And so the care for the body, hospitals, emerged from Christians who said, because this is what we believe, we are going to care for the body. It's why Christians have long been very concerned with what we do with our bodies, like our sexuality, because our bodies matter and how we use our bodies matter to God. And so this persistent concern of the body, it also tells us, you know what, God is not distinct from this ordinary world. He's not separated from the common life we experience. He is with us in all of what we might think are the humiliations of bodily life, God is present there with us. But what are we saying when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body? What are we confessing? I I find, you know, the, the, the rest of the creed had a lot of stuff that would challenge, that would maybe struggle with. I find this one to be one of the most mind stretching, faith demanding of all of the creed. It tells us that your body, my body, the bodies of all those who are in Christ will one day be resurrected. Now just think that through for a moment. So many millions of human bodies, bodies that have been mangled by accidents, harmed, bloodied by wars, billions of bodies that have been buried or burned or gassed or drowned, All these bodies that have returned to dust, right, that have returned into other living organisms, which they, again, have died and become part of that same cycle. And yet we dare to confess that those bodies, this fragile flesh that we wear, will be resurrected, raised to a new glorious life. That's a remarkable thing. And here's, here's a really important distinction, too. We confess, we believe in the resurrection of the body. The creed does not say, interestingly, we believe in the immortality of the soul. A lot of people get those two confused. They are not the same. They're somewhat synonymous. They have some points of parallel between them two. Both look beyond the grave to a life, right? But the immortality soul is this sort of Greek Platonic notion that the soul has always lived in time and now for a time it exists in a body and after death it will continue in some sort of non-physical state. But Christianity has always said not to be a human is to have this immaterial soul, yes, but it's created at some point in time. It's enfleshed in a body. To be a human, the good that God created as humans is to be embodied. 
Now, we have physical and we have immaterial parts, right? We have body, we have soul, that soul which is sort of the, the, the personhood of who we are, the identity of who we are. That's immaterial, but it belongs with a body. It is meant to be in flesh together. Together, they make you. When your body and your soul, the body God created you to have and the body God has given you and your soul are together, that is you. And you get a sense for that when, you know, you're at a funeral. If you've ever been to a funeral home, if, the, if you've seen the, the body of someone you've loved who has died, you, you can look at the body and you, you sense, yeah, that's their body, but that's not them, right? Some, something's missing. Something's gone our soul, our personality, our identity. It's meant to be united with the body. And so when we die, our our soul remains alive. It is with Jesus, Scripture tells us. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what happens after we die, other than Scripture says we're without a body and we're with Jesus, and it's a good thing. But it's not the way God meant it to be. That's not our future. The good, the glorious future that we are meant for is a resurrected body where our soul, our personality, our identity is united with a resurrected body. That is the good that God has always imagined. And and the closest the Bible gets to describing what that resurrected body is like is in that passage we read from 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, there's lots of mystery surrounding this, but Paul uses an image the image of a seed. And he argues that we will rise in the resurrection the same way that Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, we'll have a new body that is so different, but just as Jesus' resurrected body, uh, just as Jesus' resurrected body was. Remember Jesus' body? Jesus was physical, right? He ate flesh, he ate fish, he hugged, he walked, and yet there was something so profoundly distinct about Jesus. He seemed to pass through walls, like We will share in that resurrection of Jesus. And to explain that, Paul uses this image of a seed. He says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. Our bodies are like a seed, he says. Now think of that. Think of a seed and think of a tree that grows from that seed. Or if you're a gardener, you probably garden, you probably planted some bulbs in your garden. Um, Think of a bulb. That bulb is, you know, sort of this knobbly, dark little lump of whatever. And then think of the daffodil that comes up in the spring. I mean, this explosion of color and yellow and design, this intricate, tender, beautiful flower. How are those connected, right? And yet Paul says that's exactly, our bodies are like this little bulb that gets planted and the resurrection life that we are headed towards is something so profoundly different and yet continuation it is connected something so remarkable and beautiful and glorious awaits us something we never would have guessed would come from that bulb or that seed and yet their identity is the same So in the same way, Paul says, our bodies will be planted and will be raised immortal, our future life. We will be the same person we are now, but we will have this unimaginably different, glorious body. In one of his sermons, C.S. Lewis helps our imagination, directs our imagination in the right ways. He says this, quote, he says, 
the, the faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture has implanted in physical matter when he made the world are what we call physical desires. Now, that sentence alone is just so full. But he's, he's saying, he's saying, in this created world, something of God's absolute delight and rapture is contained in those things we experience, in the best wine we've ever tasted, in great music, in dance. Those are all just rumors of a greater glory that we were made for. But then Lewis adds this. He says, but what would it be like to taste at the fountainhead of that stream of which even the lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet this is what lies ahead. He is saying... The best day you have ever experienced in your life is just nothing compared to what lies ahead. I mean, think of that. The greatest joy you have ever known, the the, the deepest pleasure you have ever taken in life, it is just like a candle compared to that bright day of resurrection, when even the trees will clap their hands and dance. And if the trees are doing that, can you imagine what we will be doing? We will run and not be weary. So don't look back. You know, I'm, I'm aging in my life, 56 now, and I can look back to a time where my body functioned, where I had more hair, and I thought, oh, to be young again, right? To be strong and unwrinkled and beautiful. But the offer of a resurrected body is ahead of me. Something so much greater awaits you and I. Nothing compared to what we have right now. You are nothing compared to what you will be. Compared to what you will be, you are just a bulb right now. That's all you are, just a lumpy bulb. But something so glorious is to emerge. So can we begin to live with no regrets, with no fears, with no troubles about sacrifice because our future is a glorious resurrected body, not some disembodied, highly evolving energy force. No, you will eat and you will dance and you will love and you will drink. You were made for this. This is everlasting life. That's what the creed closes with. We believe in the life everlasting. But again, what does that mean? What are we saying when we say we believe in the life everlasting? Well, what do you think of when you think of everlasting life, of eternal life? What comes to mind? I bet for many of you, you hear life that goes on and on and on, right? And to be honest, for a lot of people, that sounds pretty boring, actually. Just the infinite extension of what we have right now. Hmm, not sure I really want that. But that's not what is meant in Scripture with that phrase, eternal life. There are two Greek words that uh, the Bible has for life. One is bios, beos, where we get biology from. The other is zoe. Zoe is the word, whenever Jesus is talking about eternal life, he uses that word zoe, and it means quality of life. Not a, not a, a time, but a quality of life. 
this summer, my son Owen and I, we uh, hiked the West Coast Trail on Vancouver Island, and it was a spectacular week of hardest climbing and hiking I've ever done in my life. Immensely challenging. Took everything on our backs, took everything out of the wilderness, but every night, you know, we would sit around this little campfire we, we uh, built along with some friends we would meet along the trail, legs aching and tired from the day of hiking, belly full of reconstituted freeze-dried food, but it tasted good. Reflecting on the, the, the oceanfront beauty in front of me, and this sense of just utter delight, I get to do this with my son. And again and again, I thought, oh man, this is living, right? So good. We use that phrase, don't we? Oh, this, this is living. Now, why were we not living moments before? Was our heart failing to beat just moments before? And now you only say, yes, now I'm alive. <laughs> of course not, right? Your lungs are pumping, you had physical life, but that's just existence. Around that fire, I wasn't thinking just about existence. I was savoring a quality of life that was so good. I had this feeling of fullness. There's a big difference between existing and living. When the Bible talks about eternal life, nowhere does it simply mean that life goes on forever and ever. I mean, there is a timeless quality to it, but when it talks, that it doesn't have that in mind. What we hunger for more is more than an infinite continuation of life as we now experience it, is a life worth living, a life full of meaning and energy and exhilaration and joy, a fullness, a quality of life. That is what the Apostle Creed means when it says, I believe in the everlasting life. The creed ends with this sort of crescendo and says, I believe in everlasting life. This, what I've just talked about, what I've confessed, is living, knowing God, my creator, and that I am the beloved of the maker of the universe through Jesus Christ, who has, what he has done on the cross. Through the power of the Spirit, I come alive and I get to extend this to others. This is living. This is everlasting life. It's not eternal existence. It's eternal life. It describes the kind of life we can have in Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus speaks of in John 17, that one little verse we read from John 17. John 17, verse 3. And this passage is so important because, you know, this is the only time, there's only one place in the whole Bible where Jesus defines what is eternal life. This is it, John 17, verse 3. Jesus gives a pretty precise definition of what eternal life is. He says, this is eternal life. He's praying to God that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that they may know about you, that they may have the best information about you, God. So often we get confused about making Christianity about knowing information about God. Information is important, but eternal life is about this experiential knowing of God. A good picture of the confusion we sometimes get comes from those eminent theologians, Monty Python. You ever see Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Right at the end of the film, 
You see, and just so you know, I mean, it's a, Monty Python is just silly, silly, okay? But <laughs> silly British humor. At the end of the film, you have King Arthur and his little band trying to get across this great chasm. And there's a castle on the other side. That's wherever they want to go. But they face the bridge of death. They must cross the bridge of death. Their quest is to get to the other side. But there's a bridge keeper who will only let them pass if they answer three questions. And if they get the answer wrong, they are cast into the abyss. And so the bridge keeper, the first night, comes up and he asks this question, state your name. And he does. And then he says, state your quest. He answers correctly. And then the bridge keeper asks, what's your favorite color? The knight says, blue. And he says, okay, you may go through. He's amazed. This was pretty easy. The second knight comes up confident, this is going to be a breeze, right? Bridgekeeper asks him the first two questions again. He answers those correctly. And then he asks them, what's the capital of Assyria? And the knight has no idea. Don't know. And he's cast into the abyss. The third knight now comes up and he's a little freaked out. He's a little terrified. He's able to answer the first two questions correctly. And then he's asked, what's your favorite color? And he says, he's all nervous, right? <laughs> Blue, no red. Ah, and he's cast into the abyss because he got it wrong. Finally, King Arthur is the last one. King Arthur comes. What's your name? King Arthur of the Britons. What's your quest? The Holy Grail. And the last question. What's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? <laughs> and King Arthur says, well, that depends. An African swallow or a European swallow? And the bridge keeper says, I don't know. And he's cast into the abyss. <laughs> It's a silly skit, right? <laughs> and yet, and yet, many of us have believed a similar idea that eternal life crossing the bridge of death is about having the right answer, right? By knowing the right information about God. But Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God. Eternal life is knowing. It is this living interaction with God, with Jesus, his son, with the Holy Spirit. It is participating in the life of God. Eternal life is to live in this rich, moment by moment, gratitude, so participatory life with God. It is, it is to know yourself as the beloved of God. It is to know that God is utterly for you, pouring out his love and his goodness to you. It is knowing God in this interactive relationship where I experience God's presence and his favor and his power in my life. Australian theologian Ben Myers writes this. He says, eternal life is about a relationship. In the person of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves drawn into a quality of life that is so rich, it can only be described as eternal life. This is eternal life. This is what we are meant for and made for, and it is not something far away in time and space that we can only experience after we pass the bridge of death and we come to heaven. Again, misconception about this eternal life. This eternal life is available now, right here. It begins now. So much so, it's so powerful that death is unable to interrupt that sort of life. Death will not, will never separate you from that experience of life in Jesus Christ. 
That is full life. And it comes to us as a gift. A gift by sheer grace. We receive it through Jesus Christ. And Scripture's really clear about this, right? That eternal life is available in Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The difference between life and death is Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the promise for you and me today. Jesus offers you and me a life that is beyond comprehension in its wonder and beauty and goodness. And it is a life that can never be diminished, can never be taken away, can never be stolen from you no matter what. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life, zoe, eternal life, and that you might have it to the full. This is what Jesus is about. Not, I have come to threaten you in line to be a good person, keep your nose clean until the end of time when maybe I'll let you into heaven. Not, I have come to exhaust you with a long list of demands. No, no, no. He says, my purpose is to bring you life in all its fullness. This is life everlasting, eternal life, knowing God. And it begins right now. No waiting. No more. Are we there yet? We are there already, friends. In Jesus, eternal life starts now. So we confidently say, I believe in everlasting life because this is living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, What an infinite, beautiful gift you give to us. You are constantly, your your, your whole being, Father, from before time, in creation now, and throughout history has been so that we might know life. Almighty God, we praise you for this remarkable gift. Forgive us, God, for all the ways that we have settled for merely existence instead of full life. You promise, God, that all who come to you will find a quality of life that not only makes life worth living, but that death can never even extinguish or take away. And so, God, we pray, we want to align ourselves with that agenda, that life. Fill us, God, all of us now, with your life so that we might not hunger or thirst for all those things that are never going to really satisfy but that we will come to you and drink deeply the source of living water. God, perhaps there's some here today who have just never either understood that or received that, and I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would lead them to know eternal life in Jesus Christ, to know that their life is enveloped with the love of Christ. Help us all, God, to see wherever that sort of full life is hindered in our world, in our communities, so that we can bring you, join you in bringing that full life to this city and to this world. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.